0: The question is still there. Are we in the light of Christ this morning? This morning I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to examine what it looks like to live in light of who our God is. What is his gospel? What it looks like to live as a church together in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 5 through 17. We're going to look at that This morning, you're going to see very quickly as we uh, begin reading it in chapter 2, verse 5, that this passage includes a, a section in what is often referred to as church discipline. Let me just set the stage for you at the beginning of our time in here. Is it possible that what Matt Hardy described in leading into the prayer of confession is actually a beautiful definition of church discipline? Perhaps church discipline is for the church to be disciplined together, to over and over again remember and remind each other of, call one another to warn each other by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we might be encouraged together in the grace that we find there. Let's see if this holds true as we examine 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at verse 5 through the end of the chapter there. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of him and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere." Heavenly Father, we thank you again this morning for your word, that we have this precious gift that you have spoken, and so we can listen. There is light for us, that we confess as we come to your word that there is not light inside ourselves of ourselves, that if there is any light In us, it is because of the miraculous, creative work of our God to shine the light of your gospel into our hearts. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do that again this morning, that we would be confronted, that we would be warned, that we would be chastised and rebuked, and we would be encouraged and comforted, and that we might be a people, therefore, of hope because of the whole of the work of your gospel in the midst of your church this morning. Lord, we pray that you would do this by your word and spirit in our midst in these moments. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, there's a bit of background that we need to our passage. If you've been following along, perhaps reading through Corinthians, you have a little bit of information to make sense of the background here. Uh, Paul's most recent letter to the church prior to the writing of 2 Corinthians, interestingly, was not 1 Corinthians. There was a letter in between, at least one, a letter that's not been preserved for us today, that is referred to in this letter as the severe letter or the harsh letter. It brings a harsh correction to the church for its failure to rebuke and discipline a divisive member in the congregation who was opposing the gospel that Paul had proclaimed among the Corinthian people. There had been a serious division in the Corinthian church, and this member had been a serious part of that serious division. Particularly, there has been some who have been coming in among the church in Corinth, and they've been challenging Paul's authority, especially Since Paul doesn't live up to the standards that are valued so highly in such a sophisticated society as Corinth, a a flourishing, growing, wealthy city in the Roman Empire. The argument seems to have been something like this. Why should we listen to Paul, that poor itinerant tent maker, Who suffers persecution in nearly every town that he visits when we could listen to some of the upstanding members of our own beautiful city here in Corinth. As a result, there's a severe letter that Paul rebukes them and the Corinthian church appears after receiving that letter from Paul. The church appears to have repented of their sin and their participation in the division. And as it regards one of the leaders among the Corinthians that stood against Paul, it seems that they rebuked him, that he was under a sort of discipline by the church. I want to take you to a passage later in 2 Corinthians that gives us a couple hints about what was happening here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 5 through 7. All right. Just a few chapters later. Paul's speaking about his travels and some of the things that he encountered there. Particularly, you'll see some information about Titus. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. Why didn't they have rest? What's going on? What's on their minds? But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. How did The coming of Titus comfort them. Well, Titus has been a messenger between Paul and Corinth. So with the coming of Titus comes news of how Corinth had received the severe letter. You can hear Paul, he's, he's nervous about how the Corinthians would receive the the severe letter. Would they, would they walk in repentance? What is going to take place? How was it received? It says that when Titus came, they were comforted not only by his coming, and they were comforted that he was with them, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. Well, what was that? As he told us of your longing, your mourning, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. What's the word that Titus brought? He brought news that they were longing after the apostle who had preached the gospel to them, and they were mourning the brokenness in their relationship. Evidently, Titus had also carried news about how they had exercised discipline upon one of the leaders who had led them in this divisive way. That passage is extremely important for our context for understanding the event's Of 2 Corinthians. Now, what follows verse 5, I'm going to make an argument this morning, is essentially discipline is grace at work in the context of the body of Christ. Discipline is grace at work in the body. Look at verse 5 with me. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure. Not to put it too severely, to all of you. That is, the whole of Paul's argument here hinges on a particular understanding of the church, that the church is a body together in christ that there when there is damage done to the fellowship it's done to the whole of the fellowship and when there is damage that is done to the proclamation of the gospel to the maligning of the gospel minister who in this case was being faithful to the proclamation of that gospel there is harm that is done to the body There are two other places in 1st and 2nd Corinthians that bears witness to this togetherness of the body. 1st Corinthians 12, 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. What is the suffering? What is the honoring? What Paul's always talking about throughout both of the letters that we have that are written to Corinth He's talking about the effect of gospel ministry in the context of the church. If one suffers harm out of a neglect of the gospel, the whole of the body suffers. If one is honored within the context of the ministry of the gospel, the whole body benefits. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty 29. Who is weak, and I am not weak. Paul literally went to a town looking for Titus, didn't find him there, but found an opportunity to preach the gospel. But was so brokenhearted by concern for Corinth that he left that town and the opportunity to preach there in order to go and find Titus to get news of Corinth. He knew that they were weak, and he was made weak. There's a unity in the body of Christ that when one suffers, particularly from neglect of the gospel, the whole body suffers. Who is made to fall? And and I am not indignant, he says. There's a participation and a unity in the church that seems to be a particularly difficult struggle for the Corinthians to practically understand. The values of their culture ran so counter spiritual unity. And I'll tell you, the thing that I've been impressed with so much in, in examining Corinth is how much their values resonate with ours. Personal advancement in the society by means of wealth and education and status. These are divisive not only in the church but in the community. So when it works its way into the way that the body operates, we're not operating like a body anymore. There is a cultural set of values that do war against the reality of the gospel in the midst of the church. Paul establishes this reality of a body together in verse 5, and he says, yes, you hurt me, but the wrong was to you as well, for I'm, a, I'm preaching the gospel to you. And so the damage was not just to hurt me. The damage was to bear a bad repute upon the gospel that I was preaching, and so you were wronged as well. And so the public discipline is sufficient look they they wronged you you don't have to keep beating this dude down in order to show that you really love me understand my concern was for you he's received the discipline and so that public discipline is sufficient it's now not only yours to discipline it is also yours to forgive and that's really the thrust of his point in this passage, what he says to the Corinthian people, if you look at the passage, it says that you are to reaffirm your love for him. I think really with the argument that he's making is your love should have never left him. Discipline is not a lack of love. Now, I've been asked a question normally by people who are examining Crosspoint Coast, getting to know whether or not they would consider partnership here, getting to know how we operate, what our understanding of the gospel is, what is the nature of the church at Crosspoint Coast, what do we understand of these things? I've been asked many times, does Crosspoint Coast believe in church discipline? Now, to answer that question, I always pause because I can hear it. I can hear the trick question in there. Like, I'm not sure how I'm supposed to guess how to answer that. But I I hear the question, but it's crucial to realize what the word discipline is. Well, The word discipline simply means to teach. It, It literally means to make a disciple. Like, all the same letters are there, right? So church discipline is church discipleship. So, does Cross Point Coast believe in church discipleship? Yeah. Yeah, we do. Like, we think that that's actually what the church exists as a ministry for, so that we might exercise discipleship, so that we might exist for the ultimate end of the worship of our God, that we might see Him rightly. We are making disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, I know what's being asked when a person asks. Does Crosspoint Coast believe that there is a time in which a member should be removed from the fellowship or refused communion or something like that because of unrepented sin or division that detracts or denies from the preaching of the gospel? And the answer is yes. Yes, we do. But, this is crucial, we do not see that that sort of church discipline is somehow separate from the whole of the church's labor to make disciples. It's always our business at all extremities of the ministry. The problem arises when the need for church discipline sort of sneaks up on the church that hasn't been serious about making disciples the whole time. It can look vindictive. It can look sudden. It can look like it comes out of nowhere because in in that instance, it did. It tends to sneak up on the church in this way when the making of disciples becomes disconnected from the preaching of the gospel. Inevitably, if the making of disciples is disconnected from the preaching of the gospel, church discipline swoops in and itself is disconnected from the preaching of the gospel. So when things go sideways... What are we left with? When we don't have the gospel, what do we have? I don't know. Persuasion? Control? It seems like those are some of the only means at our disposal when the gospel is neglected during the course of the life of the church. Let me put it to you this this way. This morning, the church is exercising church discipline right now. You're participating in it this morning. Right now, we're teaching the Word in order to show you Christ, that you would follow after Him in faith-filled obedience. You're being disciplined by the Word of God, not through eloquence, not through grand persuasion, not through powerful control, but by means of the ministry of the gospel. When we gather in community groups, what are we doing? Church discipline. Now that's a good way to invite someone to community group. Well, what do you guys do at at community group? Oh, well, we exercise church discipline, uh, eat meals together, pray together. Uh, you, You do. At least I hope you do. What I know of our community groups is this is what we are engaged in. We're participating together and shaping one another by the gospel word. When brothers or sisters gather for triad or over coffee to confess their sin to one another and to remind each other of the grace and hope and the better way of following after Christ rather than following after sin and idolatry, the church is engaged in church discipline in a weekly, in a daily sort of normal fashion, and then... One of our number fails to heed the truth in these environments that are the regular course of our life being shaped by Christ and, and chooses to run off after sin and unbelief, the preaching of the gospel. The consequences of unbelief should not be a surprise for the one who is wandering that we would go and preach a gospel that calls to repentance. Repentance. The elders, as servants of Christ and stewards of the gospel, must warn and correct, perhaps even remove a partner. Even then, the church continues to be engaged in the work of church discipline. It's when the church has failed at making disciples at all the previous points, in preaching, walking together, confessing to one another, preaching the gospel to ourselves, it's then that the church discipline comes out of seemingly nowhere, as though the church only suddenly became interested in our lives when we fail to meet some unspoken expectation. Suddenly some arbitrary standard arises, and we're removed from the church, right? It's only as the glory of Christ, the grace of the gospel, is always before our eyes in a disciplined fashion, that the discipline that we share in as a church becomes the aroma of life. Friends, I, I've, I've said this many times. The hardest thing about preaching is not preparing a speech. The hardest thing about preaching is being the first person to hear the sermon. as it works on you. I, I liken it to a, a, a chef, right? Who eats the dinner first? They're snacking on what's there the whole time, right? Snacking on the Word, and it's working on me. And there just isn't a time that there is not rebuke in the midst of the ministry of the gospel, even in preparation. And so I hope that rebuke comes out of the Word as it's here, and that we hear the rebuke. It's why we have a time of a prayer of confession to admit Really, even if we're not sure of, of where the rebuke is, to admit that we're a people who are weak and in need of the gospel of grace to prepare our hearts to hear the word, to be rebuked and comforted. And so, church, brothers and sisters together, one body together, I would ask you to welcome discipline and to participate in discipline together. Engage with me. Engage with one another. Let us engage in gospel ministry. Engage with grace for yourself. A grace that you yourself have received. I would encourage you to correct me if I ever wonder. And this isn't like some hypothetical far-off problem that might happen if your pastor falls. We were talking about it in our community group this week as they were working on me, and I was working on them, right? They were working on one another. This, is, this isn't some far-off reality that I would need the gospel of Jesus Christ preached to me. This is the way that we live together, and it's sweet. I hear the rebuke called to remember Christ, that he is sweeter, that he is better, and that his grace is sufficient. You and I both know that such discipline isn't just a drastic event. We need grace and correction regularly from our brothers and sisters. Don't wait until I or someone else have left the faith to preach the gospel. Show gently and remind that we are prone to wander. Don't, don't leave any one of us condemned there. Don't just say, you're prone to wander. And I saw it this week and you need to stop it. Is that the gospel? Have we preached anything of the gospel? Or have we just preached our self-righteous ability to see how everyone else on the planet is wrong? And we don't leave one another in the condemnation that our hearts are prone to wander but that our God has come for wandering sheep. And he has pursued us. And he has captured us and brought us back into the fold and provided the means by which we might be restored to the fellowship. We preach the whole gospel of grace from beginning to end every time. Such faith is the point, the whole gracious goal of all church discipline, restoration. And so we cannot... Exercise church discipline without preaching the grace of forgiveness and calling to that faith. I love Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses seven and eight. It says this. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. Why stay around when things get hard? Well, cause he's doing something. He's working on you. He's treating you like sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? Thank you, Jesus, you discipline me. If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're an illegitimate children, not sons. And that's so in the church as well. We're an illegitimate family, just a collection of people that don't really belong here. If we're not disciplining one another by the discipline of grace how often does a father discipline his children? It's a daily work. It's a daily work of a father who loves his children and leads them in the way that they should go and corrupts them when they wander and, and reassures them constantly of his love for them in the midst of the whole thing. That's why Paul, in verse 9, tells the Corinthians to be obedient In everything. Look at verse 9 with me. For I wrote this, for this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. You see, he already knows. He already knows that they've disciplined, right? They've already removed the member. They've exercised some punishment upon the leader. But his question is have you been disciplined in everything? Paul already knows that the church member has repented, at least in some measure, specifically that they've disciplined and corrected the person, that, that spearheaded the rejection of the gospel that Paul was preaching, and that they've chosen not to side with the false teachers. But his question is, are they not only obedient in repenting of their part and punishing the one who was wrong, but also have they been obedient in forgiving the one who was wrong and who has repented To understand how this correction and rebuke work, we have to understand the nature of grace upon which it is based. The gospel is by definition a correction of unbelief. The gospel is a rebuke. It confronts our rejection of God by telling us first that we are dead in sin and trespasses. The cross itself, is a declaration of just how dead we are apart from grace. What does our sin require but brutal public execution? The gospel itself is a public proclamation of our condemnation. All preaching of the gospel must begin with that clarity. It's grace. It's a gift to see rightly our position outside of Christ. But then the gospel tells us that our hope is not that he would suddenly, that, that, that any one of us would suddenly turn from our, from our rebellion and, and fix ourselves up so that we could prove that we can do it better next time. Prove that we have a newly invigorated self-righteousness. No. Our hope remains at all times, not in our righteousness, but in the righteous life of Christ and in his sacrificial death, that all our sin and unbelief have been forgiven, that I'm not the one who hung publicly for my sin. Christ did. The righteous one took my place that I might receive his righteousness and the grace of forgiveness in him. You see, not on the basis of our ability to earn the reward of salvation, but that God in Christ has given salvation as an unmerited gift of grace. The gospel tells us that Christ alone is good. So we shouldn't be surprised when brothers and sisters wander off in unrighteousness and rebellion. We should not be surprised when we find ourselves in need of rebuke. We shouldn't be surprised. Christ alone is good. We must be continually reminded by those around us that we are also no longer captive to wandering. But we have been taken captive by Christ. You see, the gospel is a tool. The gospel is the means of our correction. You belong to Christ is the the summary of the gospel Work. It's the church's role to remind one another of this. Therefore, if anyone who has professed to be a brother or sister in Christ by faith wanders off after other things and refuses to return to Christ in faith-filled repentance, not in demonstration of perfect obedience, but faith-filled repentance, they must be reminded of what life looks like apart from Christ and apart from the church. That's the purpose of discipline, not to cut off and condemn, but to warn that to be apart from Christ is to be cut off and condemned, and to warn and call back to fellowship, not with the church, not with righteousness, but with Christ and his righteousness. That is the outer extremity of daily church discipline. To tell someone that to wander off from idolatry is to wander off from Christ, and so to wander off from the body. It's simply the preaching of the gospel. That to be apart from Christ is to be cut off from grace. From whom, who do we have but Christ? And if we wander off from Christ and his way, what hope is there? That's our gospel message. That is the means of our discipline. As with all gospel ministry, such church discipline is not actually the work done by the church. And so it's not done in a controlling manner. It's not done in a power play, in a great exercise of authority, but a truth declared by the church about our God and his gospel. Really, church discipline is a proclamation of the truth of the gospel. It's a repetition of what we know to be true about Christ and his work but that discipline is incomplete if it ends in condemnation we've been clear about this already it's, it's a call to the wayward one to remember that their hope is in Christ alone and that they are if they are restored it is not because they have demonstrated righteousness but because of the work of Christ to forgive the repentant those who believe. And so, just as the church is responsible to speak a word of correction, a word of warning to the wayward, the church is responsible to speak joy and grace of reconciliation, to hold out hope of being restored to the body at all times. It's all by grace, and all is necessary in order to fully bear witness to grace, correction, forgiveness. They are all necessary to declare the gospel of Christ in his righteousness and in his cross, that we who have demonstrated that grace, who have proclaimed that grace, who have pointed to the grace in Christ might also smell the aroma of life in his resurrection. This is why Paul so sternly calls the church to all obedience in this episode of Church Discipline. All obedience is not hardcore Correction and rebuke. All obedience is forgiveness and reconciliation with the one who turns in faith. It's interesting. Verse 7. So you should rather turn to forgive and what? What's the word? Comfort? Comfort him? It is not forgiveness for the one who has wandered off after sin and unbelief, the very comfort that we ourselves have received from the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. What is the ministry that we have for the one who turns and repents? The ministry that we have is the same comfort that we have received, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have grace, not because this is something that we have done, some great work of grace to forgive on the church's part, but it's because something that we have received. How can we comfort one another with the comfort we ourselves have received? That's the all obedience that Paul is calling them to. So that, verse 11, all of this, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. What's Satan's design? How would he outwit Satan? the church of Jesus Christ. Well, Paul seems to think that forgiveness is the way to outwit Satan. I love the way that one commentator puts it. Satan's schemes revolve around destroying the mutual acceptance and forgiveness that is to characterize God's people since they are the evidence of God's redeeming work in Christ and the unity of the spirit that it creates. The ongoing Reflection, call, rebuke, and forgiveness that is in the gospel is the means by which we outwit Satan's designs. It's not like we came up with some great grand strategy to beat down Satan. It's that Jesus already did in the triumph of his cross. What do we do? Repeat it. And We don't perform it. We repeat it, we remember it, and we proclaim it to one another. The whole point of correction and reconciliation is to bear witness to the grace of Christ. For all correction is the call of grace to turn from unbelief. And all unity is the work of grace to forgive and restore. All this is taking place, in verse 10, in the presence of of Christ, that is under the weight of His oversight for His approval and by the ongoing work of His grace in the church. Now, we only have a few moments to look at this next section of scripture, but it gives us a few beautiful images, a few beautiful metaphors by which to really drive the necessity of grace home for us in our daily lives. Look at it with me. Verses 12 through the end of the chapter, we have Paul who has gone to Troas to preach, and even though a door was opened, his spirit was not at rest because he didn't find Titus there. He was concerned for the church. Now, I already took you to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 5 through 7 to explain why he was looking for Titus. And when he finally found Titus, the news that he got was that the church had turned, that they had rebuked the one who was causing them to wander off in unbelief. He was rejoicing in their longing, their mourning, and their zeal for him. Now, that reference to Titus is most assuredly reference to, to Paul's brokenheartedness, but also his rejoicing in the news of the work that God was doing in Corinth. And so he breaks into verse 14, thanks be to God. Paul had felt lost and despairing for the Corinthian church, waiting on news for Corinth but he actually he discovers has cause to give thanks. It turns out that the Lord's ways are higher and wiser. Paul is seeing how the Lord's grace even works in the midst of a severe rebuke. It's clear Paul did not like the letter that he wrote. No, no one likes offering Rebuke, but he's a preacher of the gospel, and so it must be a part of the whole of the gospel proclamation. He's troubled. In this case, Paul's harsh rebuke of the Corinthians turns into hope of repentance. And so it is the case of the Corinthians, with the discipline of their leader in their midst, that they too have a hope of reconciliation, just as Paul with Corinth Corinth. With the one who had wandered. There's nowhere the minister goes preaching the gospel, whether in suffering or trial, correction, confusion, that the Lord is not doing the work of spreading what he calls the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Now, that reminds me of a little phrase we use at Crosspoint quite often that we are to make disciples wherever disciples may be found. There is not some grand strategy working in the church. We're simply waking early in the morning, every day, seeking to preach the gospel to ourselves. That's the first step in our grand strategy, preach the gospel to ourselves. And then we look and see that there are people in our households, people in our dorm rooms, people in our neighborhoods, our schools, our workplaces, and these seem to need the same gospel that our hearts needed that morning to be rebuked and comforted by grace. At all times, we discover as we go about preaching this gospel that God himself is doing the work of spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere, in every nook and cranny of our hearts, our households, our community, our workplaces, even when we feel like the whole thing is nothing but failure and suffering. I think this is going to resonate with some of you who knows what it looks like to lean into that make disciples everywhere mentality in life, wherever disciples may be found. You see, Paul was going from city to city, and he kept meeting persecution over and over again, and he just kept going on to the next city. A church had, had grown up, a seedling church, and he gets news about how they're just being crazy. And wandering off after other leaders and believing other gospels. And so he writes letters to rebuke them and to remind them of the truth of Christ and to lead them back to the forgiveness and grace that's found in the cross of Christ alone. And he keeps suffering from city to city. He's brokenhearted. But he remembers that as he goes from city to city, that God is in the work of spreading the fragrance of his grace in all of these places. And I think, I don't go to city to city. I'm not an itinerant, tent-making evangelist like Paul. I'm a church planter who stayed in one county. And I think that you guys know what this is like. It's not like going from city to city. It feels like going from relationship to relationship. And preaching the gospel there. And seeing that struggle, that back and forth, investing again in in yet another place and yet another person for the sake of Christ and the joy of the church together. You know could happen if we would just believe the gospel together. But inevitably, we wander. There's brokenness and our hearts are torn and there's severity and grief. And that discipline that could be so sweet if we would be disciplined is so hard. And there's an encouragement for us there. That as we go from relationship to relationship with one another, I don't mean leaving behind the previous relationship. Man, Paul went back, right? He kept going back to these churches. It's not bouncing and burning bridges. It's entering again to where you know hardship would be as we brush up against one another's lives. We know that Christ is spreading the fragrance of His grace in that gospel ministry. I don't always smell it. I don't always see it. But this says that's what He's doing. I think of 2 Timothy chapter 4, where certainly Titus, him, T- Timothy himself was defeated. Perhaps timid. And Paul tells him, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. With complete patience, And teaching. Preach the word, Timothy. There's a a beautiful metaphor for us in this passage. Thanks be to God, who in Christ always, verse 14, leads us in a triumphal procession. The image here, is that of a conquering Roman general parading his victory in the streets of a city. Friends, that's no small thing, particularly in Corinth. I mean, if you're going to parade a victory, that'd be a great city to do it in. I'm sure they've seen it. Christ the victor, right? That's the beautiful image for us. He leads us in triumphal procession. Oh, I'd love to be a part of that parade, right? But don't get the image wrong. The image is clear for the people who heard this and had seen processions. You know who's behind the general? Not all his troops. It's his captives. It's his captives. That's who he parades through the streets to show the greatness of his victory. What does it mean to be led by Christ in a triumphal procession? It means to be captivated by his grace. Captured and enslaved by grace. So even when we try and wander, he says, oh, no, 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 no. I captured you by my grace, and my grace is going to capture you again. Uh, Friends, that's an encouragement to me as one who wanders. that, man, I belong to Jesus. And he's going to parade me through the halls of heaven to his glory. But it's also encouragement to enter into discipline again. Because we believe, man, this one belongs to Jesus. And I know how he got him the first time. And so I know how he's going to keep him. He's going to keep him by grace. And so I'm going to preach that gospel again. I'm going to rebuke and I'm going to declare the grace of Christ of forgiveness for all who believe. Again. You see, we're actually the prize. We're the booty. We're the spoils, the captives of a conquering general being paraded through the streets from city to city. And the Lord is declaring, see, look. These are the ones whom the gospel has won. These are captives of grace. So the minister of the gospel is a captive and a sign of the Lord's victory. I think that Paul is also highlighting his suffering here. That when you're dragged around from city to city in relationship to relationship like that, it can feel like suffering. It can become exhausting. The parade, though... Is, this, is to display the knowledge of Christ. As as one commentator puts it, it is to flaunt his power. David Garland puts it this way, Paul pictures himself as a previously defeated enemy of God being led in triumph that reveals and heralds God's majesty and power. And at some point, the prisoners in his train are awed that's the right general. That's the one who gets salvation done. Now as that parade goes from city to city and relationship to relationship, we're told in the passage that to some it's death to death and to others it's from life to life. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We should not be surprised that sometimes the cross of Christ is received in an unwelcome manner. It is offensive to me. It tells me that I am not self righteous, but it's not wrong. It calls me to humble myself before my God, to die to self, and to receive life in Him. And in only that way does it become life to life. Now, there is an encouragement for us at the end of the passage. Verse 17, For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. We are not peddlers of God's word. The key to understanding Paul's metaphor here is that the gospel is not some retail good that you and I can control for our own profit. The gospel is God's commodity, to dispense as a matter of grace. Paul's not engaged in a retail business of gospel ministry. The gospel is not something that Paul has purchased for a price. That's the image. And it's not to be resold for profit. Paul's received the gospel as the grace gift that it is. And so the only true manner to deal in gospel ministry is by grace. Freely giving. that The Corinthians have no right to hold on to grace and to withhold it from one who couldn't purchase it enough, but rather to give it freely. It's not a commodity to be bought and sold, even with sort of postures and overtures of faithfulness. The, the passage speaks of, of many, like so many, peddlers of God's word, But the many are not necessarily a whole collection of false teachers in Corinth. Rather, peddling of religion and philosophy and other teaching are pretty much everything the world has to offer. That's how we go about even the dispensation of knowledge. Just one visit to the UCF campus, as beautiful as the campus is and as good as the education I'm sure is, it was clear to me that I was being given a sales pitch. The idea was that we were to purchase knowledge there. But this can't be so for the church. We're not giving a sales pitch. As ministers of the gospel, we don't possess anything to be sold, but rather we have been possessed by something. We see the implications for the church as we discipline one another. Our discipline is by the grace that we have all received. So we don't withhold it until the person purchases it by some means. It's not a commodity to be resold in that way. Rather, we dispense grace as grace has been preached to our own souls. Paul's only concern is the glory of Christ, not his reputation. He doesn't want them to beat up on this guy because it shows that really Paul's actually a pretty good guy. This guy is the bad guy. No, he's concerned for grace. In the parade of preaching, we are the ones who are captive, slave to Christ. It's not our parade. So the use of the word as a commodity is to treat it as something to be consumed or used or exchanged, not honored. It's consumed by the purchaser when it's treated that way, not as a gift. And it's peddled, not given freely. But to do so is to reject the grace of the gospel. And so, at all times, our life together must be formed by the grace that has made us together. Fundamentally, this is not 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, any letter in the Scriptures, Is not a list of things that the church is supposed to do in order to perform church well. It's why at the end of our service, the message is not, the Lord bless you and keep you and so on and so on about Jesus, but go and do the church. No, let's go and be the church. What does that mean? Remember what has made us. And if grace has made us, our lives ought to look shaped by grace. It's true that the righteousness of Christ has revealed our unrighteousness, and it is true that the cross of Christ has revealed our only hope of salvation. And so the call for us this morning is to discipline one another by the preaching of the gospel of grace. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your grace is true. Irregardless of whether or not we we manage to proclaim it rightly, you are in the business of spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of you. I thank you, Lord, that we don't have to be afraid of rebuke. Thank you that we don't have to be afraid of the discipline that you would work in us through your church even, by your word or by your spirit. But we can... Be hopeful because of the freedom of your grace. We don't have to store up some set of righteousness in order to be worthy, but rather being unworthy, we receive freely by grace through faith. Thank you, Jesus. We just pray that you would make us who we are, that your grace would work in our midst to fashion a people that look grace-shaped. Thank you, Lord. We love you. Even that's a grace. And we pray that you would show us how to love one another in the communities in which you've placed us. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your name, in the name of our Savior, our Redeemer, our conquering general. We pray. Amen.